Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I cannot think of committing my military character, which is dearer to me than life, to the fortuitous events of war, which I cannot direct. And should it be crowned with success, the glory and honor will belong to another, whilst on the contrary, should it be unfortunate, I must share in the disgrace, after giving up peace and ease, and relinquishing certain pleasing prospects in the civil line to which I am invited by my fellow citizens. Thus did General Anthony Wayne write Secretary of War Henry Knox in early April 1792 as part of a correspondence that President Washington had asked Knox to engage in to ascertain what Wayne's conditions would be to take command of a new army to take on native forces in the West that had already defeated two previous U.S. Army campaigns in the region. Wayne's answer was clear. Either he would be in complete command of his forces or the administration would have to find another commander. On April 13, 1792, Wayne assumed a commission with the rank of Major General as, quote, commanding officer of the troops in the service of the United States, and the next phase of what would come to be known as the Northwest Indian War had begun. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I am your host, Jerry Landry. Before we go any further, I did want to make a quick note here. If you haven't already listened to episode 1.7, entitled Arthur St. Clair, Worst General Ever, then I'd highly recommend that you do so before listening any further, as that episode will provide you with good context for the focus of this episode. I'll give you a minute to go and listen to it. Okay, done? Good. Now that you're properly aware of the defeats that befell Josiah Harmer and Arthur St. Clair, we can get to talking about Wayne's Legion of the United States. Naturally, a key part of this new military force was General Wayne himself. Like Josiah Harmer, Anthony Wayne was born in the then colony of Pennsylvania on New Year's Day, 1745. He was described in his early days as being a, quote, pretty wild boy. Likely influenced by his father, Anthony grew up with an interest in the military. One of his schoolmasters wrote to Anthony's father about his progress, or rather, lack thereof, in his studies, and asserted that, quote, what he may be best qualified for, I know not. One thing I am certain of, he will never make a scholar. He may perhaps make a soldier. He has already distracted the brains of two-thirds of the boys under my charge by rehearsals of battles, sieges, etc. After some additional studies in Philadelphia, Anthony returned home to Chester County and started working as a surveyor. Like Washington, the young Anthony Wayne would find himself going out into the wilderness as he became an agent of a land company speculating in lands in Nova Scotia. As noted by historian Alan Gaff, quote, he, Wayne, spent two years in the Canadian wilderness, a life full of dangers, hardships, and trials, of thrilling adventures, a school for discipline, resourcefulness, caution, courage, industry, energy, and achievement. 
Upon his return to Pennsylvania, he married and started a family, but also became involved in the political life of the colony, being elected to the Colonial Assembly just prior to the outbreak of the Revolution. When the war started, Wayne raised a regiment of Minutemen in Chester County, then was appointed in January 1776 as Colonel of the 4th Battalion of the Pennsylvania Line. He would see battle for the first time later in the year, when he and his battalion joined with other forces under the command of General John Burgoyne in an attack on Trois-Rivières as part of the unsuccessful invasion of Canada. Just over a year after his initial appointment, Wayne would be promoted to Brigadier General and would join General George Washington's command in the spring of 1777. Along with the rest of Washington's forces, Wayne would participate in the battles of Brandywine and Germantown before going into winter quarters at Valley Forge. While desperately trying to keep his forces supplied, Wayne would also use the time at Valley Forge to implement some of the concepts of discipline and training espoused by military strategist Maurice de Saxe within his ranks through twice daily drills. When a number of soldiers failed to appear for drill, Wayne had an order put on the door of every hut and camp that, quote, no soldier in future is to be absent on the hours allotted for exercise, either for water, provisions, or any other pretext whatsoever, except on duty on pain of being severely punished. Like Washington, while building up his forces, Wayne focused on minute details of camp life, including the number of windows on each hut, quote, for proper ventilation, and when and for how long soldiers would bathe. Friday afternoons with, quote, no man in the water for more than 10 minutes. There were certainly similarities in the background and leadership tactics of the commanding general from Virginia and his Pennsylvanian subordinate, but there were some differences between the two as well. While Washington had perfected his manners and decorum, Wayne was described as, quote, rugged and coarse. While Washington was cautious in his approach to battle, Wayne was seen as carrying out, quote, bold and audacious attacks, and even going so far as shouting to the soldiers under his command that, quote, I believe that a sanguine god is rather thirsty for human gore. He soon earned the nickname Mad Anthony, but despite this, he gained the confidence of Washington, who praised him for his, quote, good conduct and bravery in battle. One historian later described Wayne as, quote, an anachronism in the 18th century who saw himself as a, quote, knight-errant running forth to do great and noble deeds. Though he would be present for the Battle of Yorktown, Wayne was more of a spectator in that action, having suffered an injury, his fourth in the course of the war, pretty early on in the campaign. He would be present for the surrender ceremonies before being sent further south to assist General Nathaniel Greene in retaking control of Georgia and South Carolina from the British before being mustered out of the army at the brevet rank of Major General in September 1783. The now civilian Anthony Wayne tried his hand at both politics and business. He went into a spiral of personal debt attempting to become a rice planter on land that he held in Georgia. His home life, likewise, was a disaster due to his various extramarital dalliances. He was a bit more successful in his political aims, serving as a Pennsylvania Assemblyman and as a member of the Pennsylvania Constitutional Ratifying Convention before moving to Georgia, where he successfully challenged James Jackson for his seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. However, due to a technicality, his re-election in 1792 was overturned and his seat declared vacant around the time that Washington and his cabinet were beginning their search for a new commander to take over from the defeat at St. Clair. 
I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Since St. Clair's defeat, the War Department had been in rather of a holding pattern as they regrouped and tried to rebuild their forces. The work of the agents negotiating with Native forces took on added importance as the U.S. could not risk a prolonged military conflict in the area while the Army was in such a weakened state. However, the potential for future success was starting to appear as reports of growing divisions in the Native American Confederacy started to make their way east. The fact of the matter was, there were too many people to support in the Maumee Valley region. In the winter of 1791-1792, the Delaware, Miami, and Shawnee suffered from a shortage in their food stores, and the deep snow that season prevented them from hunting for more food. As soon as they were able, Native peoples began to abandon their towns on the Maumee River, as they saw them as being both strategically and sustainably unsafe. But with each uprooting and having to rebuild the foundations of their culture in each new location, their standard of living went down. As a contemporary person of European descent who had been held captive in one of the Maumee villages reported upon his escape, quote, they live very poor, can scarcely get provision to keep them alive. This point of weakness allowed the administration to rebuild its forces. Congress passed the first Militia Act in May 1792, which, quote, authorized the president to call out the militia in the following cases. Invasion from any foreign nation or Indian tribe. Insurrection within a state on the request of the legislature or of the governor if the legislature were not in session. An opposition to or obstruction of the execution of the laws of the United States by combinations too powerful to be suppressed by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings or by powers vested in marshals. Meanwhile, Washington and Knox had developed a plan of reorganization for the Army in which they abandoned the previous system of dividing infantry, artillery, and cavalry into separate units and instead divided the full force into four sublegions of 1,280 soldiers that were commanded by brigadier generals. This was a similar plan to what was being implemented in France at around the same time and, as noted by historian Colin Calloway, quote, enhanced tactical flexibility, and represented a departure from the 18th century practice of regarding the entire army as a single tactical unit. A key part of this reorganization, though, remained at the top. Namely, who would be the overall commanding general of the army? Around the beginning of March, Washington consulted with his cabinet, as well as drew up his own thoughts on a list, quote, of all the general officers from the Revolutionary War now living and in this country. Some are ruled off with little to no hesitation. Brevet Major General McIntosh was described by Washington as, quote, old and inactive, not much known in the Union, and therefore would not obtain much confidence or command much respect, either in the community or the Army. Of Brevet Major General Scott, he wrote, quote, brave and means well, but as an officer of inadequate abilities for extensive command and by report is addicted to drinking. He was even less generous to Brevet Major General Whedon, of whom he wrote that he was, quote, not supposed to be an officer of much resource, though not deficient of a competent share of understanding. 
rather addicted to ease and pleasure, and no enemy, it is said, to the bottle. For someone who is so polished in social mores, I can attest that Washington in his private writing could be rather direct and opinionated, sometimes to hilarious effect to modern readers. I can tell you that I had a good laugh when I first read his description of a certain town in my home state of North Carolina as, quote, trifling, but I digress. Washington seems to have been serious in his consideration of who to name as commander of the armed forces. He seems to have had a focus on finding someone who wasn't a drunkard, which was what he had attributed to Harmer as his failure, and someone who could command respect independently of the administration. So, what did he have to say about the man who would ultimately get the position? Quote, More active and enterprising than judicious and cautious. No economist, it is feared. Open to flattery. Vain. Easily imposed upon. And liable to be drawn into scrapes. Too indulgent. The effect, perhaps, of some of the causes just mentioned to his officers and men. Whether sober or a little addicted to the bottle, I know not. Not a ringing endorsement by any stretch of the imagination. To be fair, as noted by historian Richard Knopf, at this point in his personal history, Wayne, quote, found himself homeless, divorced from his family, and nearly penniless in Philadelphia. Ten days after being ousted from his position in the U.S. House, Anthony Wayne was being offered full command of the U.S. Army. How, then, did Wayne end up with a command? Well, even in Washington's analysis of the situation, though his preferences were for either Benjamin Lincoln or William Moultrie, he acknowledged that Lincoln was, quote, infirm, past the vigor of life, while Moultrie was an X-factor as, quote, I've had little or no opportunities to form an opinion of him. Wayne, however, he had had ample opportunity to observe his abilities. Both John Furling and Richard Norton Smith, in their studies of Washington, note that he would have preferred to name Virginia Governor Lighthorse Harry Lee to the command, but as Lee had not risen beyond the rank of colonel, it would be seen as disrespectful to all those who were already at the rank of general to appoint Lee over them. Ultimately, he would decide upon Wayne as being the best option, a known factor whose attention to detail might help him avoid the logistical problems that had hampered Harmer and St. Clair's efforts. However, Henry Knox did see fit to warn Wayne in his instructions that, quote, uncommon punishment, not sanctioned by law, should be admitted with caution. He may only be answerable to Washington and Knox, but that did not mean that there weren't limits in place for Mad Anthony. Before going back out west, let's stay in Philadelphia for a moment and look at the Secretary of War that we've talked about off and on throughout the podcast, but haven't really focused too much on. As we discussed in episodes 1.2 and 1.4, Henry Knox had served as an able and trusted general under Washington during the war and had been Secretary of War under the Confederation government before being asked by Washington to remain in that position in his administration. Historian Leonard White pronounced him to be, quote, an executive of not more than ordinary talents. But even Knox could perceive the problems with the War Department and the two failed expeditions in the Northwest Territory. Like other American generals, Knox had studied Roman military history as well as contemporary theories. Indeed, prior to the war, Knox had been a bookseller in Boston, a position that his biographer Mark Poles asserted made him feel, quote, confined and cloistered. But he had used this position to educate himself in the art of war and establish an acquaintance with some of the most well-educated citizens in the area, so that, when they became leaders in the Revolution, 
They remembered him and his studies of battlefield tactics and military engineering, which helped him to make the transition from bookseller to officer. Even British General Thomas Gage, upon his arrival in Boston and watching Knox drill a militia company, remarked, quote, that he was impressed with their military bearing. Knox had long thought about how to reorganize the American armed forces. Sachs, who we mentioned earlier as being an inspiration for Wayne and his command, was also drawn upon by Knox and Friedrich von Steuben in 1784 in their proposal, quote, that America place its military forces on a legionary footing with a force of just over 3,000 men. Congress, however, cut the army into a 700-man force of eight infantry and two artillery companies. As noted by historian Andrew Bertle, quote, 700 men were not enough to police America's long wilderness frontier. Knox would try again with the Congress under the constitutional government, proposing in January 1790 that the army be reorganized into a legion of just over 3,000 men. Quote, the legislature rejected the legion, not on the basis of its military merits, but because of its cost. Congress was also skeptical of the plan's call for greater federal control over the organization and training of the state militia. They would at least raise the Army's single regiment to a strength of 1,216 men, but that was as far as they would go, until, of course, St. Clair's defeat. Congress had added a second regiment following Harmer's defeat, but the core problem still remained, which contributed to St. Clair's defeat. Knox saw both defeats as being due to the fact that, quote, their expeditions had been formed by hastily combining undisciplined militia with companies of regulars pulled from various garrisons. Such ad hoc assemblages had proven inadequate because the men were poorly trained and unaccustomed to working together. There was still hesitation after St. Clair's defeat, but the prestige of Washington and the urging of Knox helped convince them in March 1792 to agree to an enlargement of the size of the army to over 5,000 men, as well as a restructuring of the force as deemed, quote, expedient by the president and his officers, and gave them $1 million with which to fund the new army, much more than had been given to either Harmer or St. Clair. One of the conditions Wayne had made upon his acceptance was that he should not be required to march until his troops were fully ready. This was something that Washington and Knox were completely behind him on, and thus it would be a while before Wayne's new command would take the field. While the new commander was beginning to make arrangements to assume his new command, it doesn't mean that nothing was happening in the Ohio country in the meantime. St. Clair had left for Philadelphia, and a new temporary commander was assigned in early January 1792. This new commander is someone who has been mentioned before and now is due a proper introduction. You may remember from episode 1.7 by mentioning a leader in the Western territories who had taken an oath of loyalty to the Spanish king and was working as a secret agent for Spain. This man, James Wilkinson, was now in command of U.S. Army forces in the Northwest Territory. That's right, there's nothing new about allegations of foreign powers infiltrating the highest levels of government though it should be noted that Wilkinson's ties to the Spanish were not known until well after this point. Since we didn't talk much about Wilkinson before, let's take a moment and properly introduce him as he'll be popping up from here until Jefferson's presidency and might possibly come up again as late as James Monroe's terms in office. For someone who could justifiably be called a traitor, he was able to sustain himself close to the halls of power in the U.S. for a good portion of his life. Wilkinson was included on Washington's list of general officers, though his name was misspelled, 
which should be noted was not necessarily a sign of disinterest in a time where spelling was not standardized. Washington wrote of Wilkinson that he, quote, is by brevet senior to those whose names follow, but the appointment to this rank was merely honorary, and as he was but a short time in service, little can be said of his abilities as an officer. He is lively, sensible, pompous, and ambitious, but whether sober or not is unknown to me. Wilkinson was born in Maryland in 1757, quote, into a respectable gentry family of English descent, and was educated by private tutors before attending medical school in Philadelphia. Signing up with the Continental Army at the age of 18, he quickly rose up the ranks and, like Wayne, participated in the failed invasion of Canada, along with the battles of Trenton, Princeton, and Saratoga. By the time of the Saratoga campaign, Wilkinson was serving as Chief of Staff to General Horatio Gates, and shortly after the success of that campaign was elevated to the rank of Brigadier General by Congress, becoming one of the youngest generals in the Continental Army, being only 20 years old at the time. However, possibly due to his youth and inexperience, and without doubt attributable to his connection with Gates, Wilkinson got involved in the Conway Cabal that we discussed back in Episode 1.2. Indeed, it was due to Wilkinson that Washington got wind of this dissension in the ranks, as Wilkinson, quote, during a late-night drinking binge in Reading, Pennsylvania, indiscreetly revealed the plot to a Washington loyalist, who immediately informed his chief. Though I'm sure thankful for Wilkinson's loose lips, this did not endear him to General Washington, and thus Wilkinson voluntarily resigned his commission. He would rejoin the army before the end of the war as Congress named him as quartermaster of the army in 1779, but he again incurred Washington's ire as the commanding general complained, quote, that Wilkinson was spending less time at army headquarters than he was devoting to Congress and his new bride in Philadelphia. After leaving the quartermaster post in 1781, Wilkinson got involved in Pennsylvania politics and might have been able to rise to greater prominence if not for developing, quote, what was to become a ruinous lifetime practice of living beyond his means. Desperately seeking financial solvency, Wilkinson, like many other young men of the time, headed westward, settling in Kentucky, where he opened a mercantile store and, quote, quickly became one of the sparsely settled area's most prominent citizens. His collision with the Spanish came about in 1787 as he traveled to New Orleans in an attempt to negotiate with Spanish officials to, in the short term, allow him to sell cargo that he had brought with him, and, if possible in the long term, to crack open the door for future trading on the Mississippi for him and his associates. Wilkinson managed to secure a meeting with the Spanish governor of Louisiana, Esteban Muro, and the two not only negotiated a deal for Wilkinson to sell his goods, but also for Wilkinson to serve the Spanish crown as a secret agent in Kentucky. Historian John Thornton Posey, in an essay on Wilkinson's career, questions what so many historians and scholars have taken for granted over the years. Namely, how serious did Wilkinson take this oath of loyalty? Though we can speculate, there's no way to conclude. However, Posey does make a compelling argument that, as Wilkinson was part of, quote, an entire generation of separatists, revolutionaries who had staked everything on a then-treasonable gamble to sever ties with a distant ruling regime deaf to their basic interests. It is not hard to imagine that Wilkinson, quote, was only positioning himself to ride along the crest of a wave of popular indignation propelled by intolerable conduct of the dominant eastern government, shouldn't materialize, and that Wilkinson never, quote, really believed that a separated Western nation 
populated mainly by diverse, free-spirited, monarchy-hating Protestants, would actually merge with the nearby domains of his Catholic majesty. Again, it's hard to say how accurate this interpretation is, but it is a fact that Wilkinson swore an oath of loyalty, provided intelligence reports to the Spanish, and was paid for said intelligence. This brings us up to Wilkinson's rejoining the army in late 1791. As it seems with many decisions in Wilkinson's career, this decision came about due to financial necessity. Despite negotiating trading rights with the Spanish and receiving a $7,000 payment from the Spanish government, Wilkinson was back in rocky financial waters and thus rejoined the army, taking command of Fort Washington, located at what is now Cincinnati, Ohio. Thus, he was in place when St. Clair set out for the East to defend himself from criticism over his ignoble defeat and left Wilkinson as the temporary commander of the forces in the West. As noted by historian Hendrick Borum, quote, It was evident from the first that Lieutenant Colonel James Wilkinson meant to take hold decisively in his new job. It was equally evident that he had a flair for the dramatic. For me, I will have to admit that discussing Wilkinson in this context is a bit like coming home. One of the raw recruits that was coming into the fold in the Northwest Territory at the time was William Henry Harrison. For those of you who are unaware, I run a concurrent podcast called The Harrison Podcast, focused on the ninth president of the United States. And in a series on the life of Harrison, I discuss Wilkinson's influence on his career. Thankfully for Harrison, Wilkinson's tenure would be short-lived, so he would not be dragged into his later controversies. But Wilkinson did take Harrison under his wing and help him to get his career started calling Harrison, quote, one of the best disposed, most promising young gentlemen in the Army. If you're interested in listening to that episode, I'll post a link to it on the source notes page for this episode. Turning the focus back to Wilkinson, he saw this temporary command as an opportunity to make a name for himself and thus immediately set to work on plans for a midwinter campaign against the native forces. His plan consisted of two primary objectives. Quote, first, to recover the cannon lost on 4th November, i.e., St. Clair's defeat, and second, to raid any Indian village within easy reach. Though providing settlers in the area with a sense of comfort that quick action was being taken, Borum notes that, quote, the regular officers under Wilkinson's command probably thought it unnecessary exertion. Nevertheless, Wilkinson's force set out in late January 1792 and followed St. Clair's route during, quote, the coldest winter the West had known for seven or eight years. Several members of the party fell victim to frostbite, but thankfully they encountered no native forces during their march to Fort Jefferson. Upon reaching that fort, Wilkinson thought better of his plan and ordered the infantry, including Ensign Harrison, to return to Fort Washington. Wilkinson, however, did proceed with a small group of volunteers to the battlefield of St. Clair's defeat. What they found upon their arrival was, as thus described by Borum, quote, 14 miles before reaching the site, the volunteers had begun encountering bodies in the snow, mere skeletons at first, with the flesh eaten from their bones. But later, on the field itself, naked bodies, blackened by frost, but otherwise well-preserved by the winter cold. The cold hadn't preserved the bodies from animals and enemies, however. Some bodies appeared to have had limbs torn off by the enemy, while some of the women killed at the defeat had huge stakes run through their bodies. Everywhere, there were signs of the savagery of the battle. The party was unable to bury the bodies of the dead as they had intended, as the ground was frozen and many of the bodies were frozen to it. So they returned to Fort Washington without having accomplished much of anything. 
Wilkinson would soon be planning another foray into the wilderness, however, after receiving orders from Secretary of War Knox to construct a new outpost between Forts Hamilton and Jefferson. Late March would see Wilkinson and a force of 260 construct Fort St. Clair as ordered and leaving a small garrison there before returning to Fort Washington. This would prove to be Wilkinson's last major action while in command, as news arrived in early May that he had been passed over for permanent command in favor of Anthony Wayne. One has to wonder how much Wilkinson's involvement in the Conway Cabal contributed to Washington's decision. Having already had two major defeats in the West, it is quite likely that Washington was little inclined to put someone for whom he had little respect or trust in this critical command. Washington and the Army needed a win, and he was willing to place his bets on Mad Anthony to deliver it. This seems like as good of a place as any to wrap up for today. Now, if you thought the talk of frozen corpses in this episode was a bit of a downer, then you should probably go ahead and prepare yourself for the next episode, where we talk about slavery in the United States prior to the invention of the cotton gin. As slavery plays such a key role in American history, it is important to have an understanding of the practice as it stood in the first term of the Washington administration, as new technology, the Haitian Revolution, and westward expansion would have important ramifications for slavery in America and indeed on the stability of the nation itself from here on out. Until then, if you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, please feel free to reach out to me at Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I can also be reached on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. Source notes, as well as the link to the Harrison podcast episode referenced, can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. Thanks so much for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.